This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers clients earn up to 4.58% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances? In fact, you need to ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Compare IBKR's ability to pay you interest of up to 4.58% to other brokers who can only pay you less than one half percent. You know who they are. And that's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. When placing your money with a broker, you need to make sure your broker is secure and can endure through good and bad times. IBKR's strong capital position, conservative balance sheet, and automated risk controls are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. Their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you higher interest and with demonstrated security and financial strength. Of course, we know that rates are subject to change. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. Visit IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. The Fed speaks and raises rates. The BOJ changes their tune. The Dow Jones Industrial Average breaks its winning streak. And we have some great guests this week, both David Gaffin of Reuters and Vitaly Katzenelson of Investment Management Associates. All this and much more on episode number 827 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. back to another great edition of the Discipline Investor Podcast. My name is Andrew Horowitz. I'm your host, and this is where we spend each and every week together. And thank you for joining me this week again in the heat, the doldrums, the, the humidity, the oppressiveness of the summer. And here we are exiting July, relatively unscathed, except for a few little blips over the last couple of weeks. Yes, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which had a hot streak going back to the 18, late 1800s, and just couldn't hold on one more day. Seeing the news from the Bank of Japan that they were going to allow for their interest rates to float and potentially above the all-important 0.50 or 50 base point line. Well, that spooked investors on top of the fact that we had a pretty ugly seven-year bond auction on Thursday. Well, that's on the heels of some good news that we got from Meta or Facebook and bad news uh, from the outlook on Microsoft and a mixed result from a few others. I mean, generally speaking, tech once again stole the show. Now, listen, I don't want to get too much further on in the discussion and talk about things because we have two great guests today. We have two wonderful guests, and I want to get right to them and see what they have to say. So, so sometimes we have no guests. Sometimes we have an overage of guests. So what I thought we would do is get to our first guest, and then when we come back after that, we'll get to Vitaly Katzenelson, from Investment Management Associates, 
talking about things like value investing. So uh, both sides, one, a Reuters news expert in the area of writing the what's happening and and giving it to us straight. And then we'll talk about valuations and things of that, of that nature as well. So let's kick it right off. And our guest today is David Gaffin. He is the U.S. breaking news editor for the company for Company News at Reuters, where he has worked for 14 years. He also did stints in at the U.S. Energy as the ed, ed, energy editor uh, and U.S. Deputy Markets editor, and has been a business journalist for more than 20 years. In that time, he has covered the 2008 financial crisis, the oil market meltdown in 2020, and was nominated for a Lieb Award for a series of articles on the growth of stock buybacks in 2015. So, David, you haven't been on for a really long time, so welcome back to the Discipline Investor Podcast. Do it, I really appreciate you being on. It's really good to be here. Really nice to be back. I don't really remember how long ago it was, but I know it was a long time. Uh, by, the way, by the way, by the way, this is not, uh, I'm not uh, brown nosing or blowing smoke. Uh, my go-to these days for news is Reuters. Great. Yep, I use the app. It's good to know. The app is yeah. excellent. Um, I, 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 it's my first read and I find, uh, that in a world there is so much, let's just say outside opinion, pushing on news pieces. I find, you know, for the most part, the, the stuff that I'm reading through Reuters is the facts, just the facts. Thank you very much. That's at least how we I try to it. aim at that. Absolutely. We try to aim at that. I mean, we try to stick to what we call our trust principles. We try not to adorn things, uh, you know, over over too much with adjectives and the like. I mean, we try to be pretty straightforward. And I think it helps us and as our reputation goes, you know, and, and I think it's very important that, you know, we we don't just overdo it with stuff. You right. know, and, and I, I think and that's thanks for not deal. doing two other things that I, I just thought of as you were mentioning this. Num number one is um, – what would we call that? Uh, headline bait, you know, clickbait stuff. Uh, yes. And, and the second thing is not using corny, corny headlines uh, like, you know, the low main factory is closed or something. And that has to do with China. So I don't know, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Just something weird yeah. like that. Because you get that <laughs> all the try time. try to avoid that. Right, yeah. The, the, bur the burrito is melting at Chipotle. All right, let's get into a discussion because a lot of things that we have on the, on the, on the topic to talk about, um, and in no particular order, but let's talk about China. Because China's economy has been in the dumps. You know, one of the great things that we saw last year was the excitement around the reopening, right? Everybody's like, the reopening. It's going to be this, this grand thing where, you know, a billion-plus people are let out of their cages, I guess is what the point was, right? And they're going to they're yep. allow to do the thing, and they're going to have the desire to, to, to go out and YOLO, do their thing. And it did happen for a minute. And then what's going on? Yeah, you know, uh, it's been that kind of uh, question, and that's been one that's been going on here. And it did happen for a little bit of a hot second there. We saw, you know, sort of a quick rebound as people started to open back up. And then things seem to have sort of really fizzled out here. And, you know, the, you have not seen that kind of consumer spend um, that uh, a lot of people expected. You're starting to see that come through. Uh, the earnings results that we've been seeing uh, over the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. and, you know, particularly hurting a number of the European com companies because they're big exporters over there and rely on, you know, a lot of the spend that happens there. And, you know, now there are some talks about China doing some stimulus 
you know, it's a very managed economy, uh, unlike the United States and unlike a lot of the other, you know, very large kind of dynamic, you know, capitalist nations. Uh, and your mileage may vary on which ones, you know, be it, be it you know, Western Europe, the United States, Canada, and all the rest of those, Japan too. Uh, but it it is still not on that footing. I mean, and, you know, we've had some discussions recently about how these estimates of when China will eventually overtake the United States as the world's largest economy. And look, I think it has five to six times our population. You would expect that to eventually happen. But those numbers get that that gets pushed out uh, over and over again. I mean, now that I think I've seen some estimates that say it's not going to happen for somewhere in the range of 40 years, mm. 45 years. And and. So that, you know, it really says something that they've kind of hit the skids, you know, at a time when, you know, Europe is 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 not in a great position as far as their economies go because of the reliance on Japan to some extent. But while the United States, you know, obviously we're not an emerging market, you can't expect five, six percent growth from us. But, you know, you are seeing this sort of very broad sort of chugging along, which is what the U.S. just seems to do. And and either way, I think we're going to continue to see that ripple through a number of other markets. You know, the oil market, despite all of the cuts from OPEC, has not really managed to gain any kind of foothold above $80 a barrel. Yeah. Uh, you're seeing it with the consumer spend and the you know earnings that are coming out of the big consumer names out of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really sort of this weird counterbalance to some of the worries that people have about a lot of places overheating and China is not overheating because, you know, they are now again looking at more stimulus and will that, you know, jumpstart things or will it kind of well, keep them running in place? Well, the other thing about the stimulus, the recent stimulus that I read about was really targeted very dramatically towards the property sector. You know, one of the big cash cows, the, the, the ATM machines over the years in China has been the real estate sector of two levels. One is, have you been to China, by the way, David? I have not been to China, okay. actually. So let me tell you something. So I don't I'm going to tell you firsthand something, okay? It's a much different culture. Um, and, and in a way, I envy them, to be honest with you. I know there's, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? Now, do I envy, you know, sitting, you know, eating eating crappy food uh, that I don't have because I'm so poor and not having good toilets and air conditioning? No, not at all, okay? However, their values in some areas, their family values and stuff is, is you know, kind of a throwback to yesterday, you know, yesteryear. Um but the thing that's interesting is that they had for decades a an economy that was built on a couple of different things, right? One is is what was, was manufacturing that we decided here that we didn't want to do. Right? We don't. We don't. Who? I'm not working in a factory at uh, this amount of money and this wage, and you know, and get all hot and bothered. Let's let's to send it out. And on top of that, this the the opposite. The the other part of that is. I'm not paying that much for a shirt, so therefore you have to get it at a cheaper location, right? Whether it's Vietnam or Indonesia, China. China was the first place that we exported all of our know-how to. Then they stole it, and then we're pissed off about it. But that's, again, another story. The thing is that the second tier of what their wealth was built on was infrastructure, in particular residential and apartment buildings. You've heard the stories, I'm sure, about ghost cities, right? Yes. Yeah. It's true. I drove for miles. I mean, miles and miles and miles looking out the window to my right going, what the hell is going on? This can't be, it's, it's almost like this weird re step and repeat that they have this. And then what, what, what I'm told happens is the wealth is built from two things, the value going up and people investing in it. And it was kind of a managed, as you mentioned, situation, right? 
nice way of saying manipulated, but managed. Secondly, the people, the, the, the prefectures and the cities and the areas that got the deals would put their cousin Vinny or whatever his name is, uh, onto the windows and the other cousin and brother-in-law onto the doors and the other guy onto the concrete and the other guy onto the electrical. You follow what I'm saying? So yep. they, they would amass a lot of money that way. Well, that's all falling apart. Nobody really trusts it. We see what happened with some of the major developers. And I think that's a problem. And that's why that's, as you mentioned, I think really appropriately, why you're seeing problems with the high-end um, luxury retailers that are based in Europe that really focus in on the bling that the Chinese and Japanese and Asians really like. Right. I think that that, you know, you, you make a couple of good points here. And, and you know, you mentioned the European uh, luxury retailers and, you know, some of their spend, their, their, their profit is based on not just selling to mainland China, but from tourists coming from China. And that's one area of the world that has just not returned to the flying the way that others have. Um, and so the LVMHs and the others like that are all kind of looking around and saying, what's happening here? And it came at a time when you're starting to see a little bit of a slowdown in some of the luxury spending in the United States. Now, you know, that's, you know, a different animal, of course, but, you know, they're running into these issues as you're discussing mm -hmm. that, you know, they, and as you said, you know, we've, you know, I use the term managed, you know, which is, again, you know, uh, you know, I feel that, you know, what's notable is that, you know, you have large economies around the world that are more or less, you know, uh, you know, capitalist in nature. Obviously, you know, the government plays certain roles depending on where you are, but still, the economies, you know, as large as they are, they adjust one way or another. And, you know, so you can look at the way that's happened right now in the United States, as well as, you know, some other parts of the world. And China still, you know, involves a lot of government tinkering that, oh, yeah. you know, is not as prevalent in other places, regardless of whatever legislation you can look at that's designed towards trying to boost investment in certain parts of economies in, you know, various parts of the world. But we've seen a lot of resilience in in earnings, which is fascinating. Here we are. What are we in? We're the third. We're the the July. We're in the second quarter of. Yes. Uh, we're on the third quarter. We're in the third quarter of two thousand twenty-three. Yeah. Right. That's right. And the results coming out of the second quarter results. That right. Are coming but, out. but right. We would have thought a year ago that well, you know, with interest rates rising as much as they have. There's no shot that this economy is going to do it. Last week, we saw GDP come out at 2.4%, uh, which was like, what? Okay, that's interesting. We see the Fed you know, increase interest rates by 25 basis points. But yet, we're seeing all this talk, I am one of them, right, um, of, of the potential for a recession due to the massively inverted yield curve and all the things that you could fill in the from there is this the dog that just doesn't bark you've got to wonder about that i mean some of us have been calling this the recession that never arrives <laughs> and you know you brought up you know last week's uh, gdp report on the second quarter 2.4% which is a solid number solid consumer spending uh we're reasonably well in business investment uh, uh, I noticed that in the past week, the strategist from Jeffries, I believe, who was one of the people who was kind of pounding the table on, you know, that this was not going to end well, is kind of rethinking that and thinking, you know, that that, you know, thought was not quite correct. 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, the economist from Goldman Sachs, Jan Hatzius, lowered his chances on a recession from, I think he was already on the lower side. Oh, that was side, ridiculous. 25 to 20 percent. That was, you know what? Yeah, which that's is embarrassing. That's an embarrassing call. <laughs> OK, come on. Yeah, that's not much of a move. I do agree with you, you know, uh, on on that front. Very generally, though, you know, you do see this sort of general feeling now of it. You know, a soft landing may actually happen, and some of that may be due to the general labor tightnesses out there. People don't want to leave their jobs, and companies are afraid of letting people go because mm -hmm. demand is mm -hmm. reasonably solid. And there are arguments that we are still understaffed based on the level of economic activity that we're seeing. So you haven't seen that response, and maybe it's out there. You know, but again, I have to sort of circle around to your point. Is this the dog that didn't bark here? I mean, we're 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 saying this over and over and over again. Oh, the recession's coming. The recession's coming. Really? Where is it? I well, maybe. You know, how about this, David? How about the economy was so freaking strong that even the massive increases in interest rates that we've seen, the parabolic move that we haven't seen really forever at the at the at the level we've seen, right? Uh, was no match for just the incredible strength due to the trillions of dollars of stimulus and other measures that was pushed into the economy on top of the Trump tax cuts, on top of all the extra that was done, you know, deregulation, things of that nature, that it's almost a, a very difficult thing. Whereas we're not going to really see an end to inflation for a very long time. Right. I mean, and I'm curious where we end up, you know, uh, obviously the core level of inflation, you know, is still elevated. The broader level has come down because of energy prices coming down. Um, and there is a, a certainly a weird, tough balancing act that goes with trying to engineer lower growth to kind of pull inflation back without turning this thing into, as you say, you see a more classic recession of you know, a rising amount of layoffs and weakened activity. I mean, the, the soft landing thing is very hard to pull off at the same time. You know, if you define a recession by, you know, the, the very broadly a downturn in economic activity across numerous sectors, we're obviously not seeing that. I yeah. mean, you've definitely had, you know, the downturn in housing and, sure. you know, is that bottomed? I mean, nothing's really doing it all at the same time. I, I It's, it's you know, and our energy production in some ways also help, helped offset you know, the big energy inflation that a lot of people saw around the world. I mean, we, you know, and now we're at 12 and a half, you know, or roughly million uh, million barrels a day of uh, crude oil uh, production, which has offset some of what OPEC has tried to do. So, you know, there are all these countervailing factors. And I can see your point then where we're coming from on, you know, do we get a recession? Maybe. Uh, but but it feels like if we do, it's almost a, a shallowish one. I mean, where is unemployment now? It's so low. Well, that's 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 you know, the, that's where my concern is about does the this this sounds really weird, but does the Fed have to get even more intense? Like, will they behind the scenes really do some quantitative tightening and pulling liquidity out of the markets? You know, if you were the Fed, right, let me kind of put you on, this, on, on the spot for a second here. If you were a Fed and you saw the things that you saw now with the fact that you raised interest rates X amount of times and the truth is that you see that economic activity hasn't slowed, inflation has come down. But really, if you want to be honest about it, but, but if I'm putting you in the place of being a Fed guy, you wouldn't be honest. But if you were to be an honest guy uh, in the Fed and say, OK, well, um, you know, what is inflation? In inflation is obviously, you know, greater than the 2% target. But the truth is that that's, you know, these increasing prices are very, very tough uh, on individuals. And even a 2% increase means we're 2% higher than the highest point we've ever been, right, as in terms of inflation is up. So 
Sure. Would you would you would you say that you would try to be a little stronger? Powell's not strong. He's he's he is not hawkish. I mean, he always comes with the other no. side, right? He's he's yep. at and best last week in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, last you know, week we he may sounded more not. Yeah, right. Unbelievable. Right. So, I want to switch because uh, uh, what would you do? And then I want to talk about renewables. But what would you do? Oh, I mean, you know, it's hard to put myself in the in the role of the Fed chair. I mean, you know, obviously the problem is that the, there's such a lagged effect with this response here. You know, mm-hmm. we have raised rates by, you know, 500 roughly basis points. That's not, it's not nothing. Um, and and I am interested in seeing what happens with liquidity and with you know the strength in you know the various uh, debt markets. Those spreads have come back in. You know, perhaps owing something to what you're saying about, you know, maybe there needs to be a little bit more aggressive action. But, you know, there is some real concern about, you know, pushing the economy outright into a recession after all of what they've done so far. So, you know, uh, removing more liquidity from the market. Yeah, I can see it. Um, You know, I do get the sense and the reason why you would want to take a pause if certain indicators like leading economic indicators and things like that do suggest you know, some things that are, you know, going to show a downturn, you do still have the yield curve, which again, is, you know, I, I you know, I, I've, I've long, you know, always told people don't, you know, disregard the yield curve. But uh, at the moment, you know, that doesn't seem to be, yeah, nothing seems to be I don't have a good answer for you. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah. So, so yeah. Let, let's, let's, um, Let's also just consider the fact that a lot of the markets, in my opinion, are really banking on the fact that we are going to slow down and the Fed's going to come to the rescue. I had, and I mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, I had two Goldman Sachs fellers in my office, and uh, they were just going on and on about, you know, well, we're expecting that uh, eventually we're going to go into recession, the Fed will come to the rescue, and that will be really good for bonds and this and that. And I said, how old are you and how long have you been involved in this? Because you don't know history. And the fact is the new Fed has done that, but that's not always what the Fed has done. The Fed has not always been the safety net, the catcher of all bad things, right? And maybe you should rethink that just to put that into your risk models. That's all, right, as a possibility that they're not right. just going to be the all, all, all and, and forever holders. Um, let, but I'm going to switch over because I know you covered energy, and energy is pretty fascinating. We got the situation where I saw a couple weeks back, a couple, three weeks back, this commentary about Russia um, going to cut supply and talking about things. I'm thinking about isn't pretty much Russia cut off from oil exports for most of the world? And, and what do they we care? have managed? Yeah, well, they have managed to, by hook or by crook, um, shift their exports. They are sending a lot through various different intermediaries to India and China now. Uh, we are starting to bump up against that level where the oil price was last week, where you know the agreement that the United States has with all the other nations around the world, as far as that price cap, is starting to get to that point where it actually might break through that. And so I think that you know we reported that the United States is you know pressing others and saying you know we're getting to that level. Make sure you don't go above that. And there are a lot of nations that have signed on, while China and India never did, as was not expected. But they were perfectly happy to keep buying. You know, cheap Russian oil. Russia's not producing what it was before, and it's not selling what it was before, but it's selling more or less just enough that it kind of can continue to limp along, so so uh, so to speak. It, it you know, and, and I think that that was the tricky balancing act that the United States was trying. Is that you know, because if they cut them off entirely and don't allow them for any exports, well, then oil prices would have exploded, mm-hmm. and you know, would have stayed in that one hundred plus range or gone to some 
other unfathomable levels. It hasn't done that. And that was always the trick. And it's a very, very difficult one, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't know how you thread that needle. Um, but the, they are still selling. But part of what has happened, as said, is that the United States is now producing somewhere in the order of 12 and a half plus million barrels a day of crude, which is not too far from our record that we reached right before the pandemic. And when you add those things together, you end up with a market that is reasonably well supplied, particularly with China continuing mm. to sort of struggle with yeah. its demand. Right. And that's why you still have Brent crude at $80 a barrel, which is not a prohibitive price for most people. That's kind of what's going on. That's my basics on the energy situation. So let's take a couple of just a couple of seconds and wrap it up and talk about the renewable energy. Uh, been big problems in with a company called Siemens out of out of Germany, right? The, that that. Uh, it seems like the parts in their giant wind fans are problematic and trying to replace those. It's not like just, you know, uh, take that Phillips head and go change that part out. I mean, it's a, it's an effort. Um, and we're seeing that around the world, there's a, 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 the wind is starting to pick, the wind farms are starting to pick up. I think we just got one recent one in, somewhere in the U.S. that there was a lot of talk about. Is that going to be the renewable energy? Is solar? I mean, what are we, is nuclear going to come back and, because it's got a bad name. I've always said just change the name of nuclear energy. Change it to change it to something else. Just change the name and it will, will be fine. Yeah, just call it like flowers or yeah, something. Yeah, call like it flower that. energy. Like, yeah, it'll be, it'll be great. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, there has been such a, a big ramp up in terms of the uptake on uh, renewable energy in a lot of places, um, you know, wind and solar. Uh, it has its. I do not think it's the you know panacea for everything, but neither does it deserve some of the criticism that I think it gets. You know, from people who say it's not going to be there, it's not going to be there. I mean, we understand its limitations. The sun isn't out at night. The wind does not blow all the time. Uh, we did see within some of the recent um, increases in power demand and some of the heat waves that we've seen in places like Texas and other places that the renewable power generated. Uh, was instrumental in keeping the grid online, and it can't be argued that it's not a good part of it. However, I think that the build-out that we're expecting and a lot of the ambition that we see that is being talked about is being constrained by some of the things you've brought up. The ability to do this, to get offshore wind farms going, to get wind going in a much bigger, more broad way, is restricted by you know your ability to manufacture, by your ability to, to, to build turbines so that they can be used in the production of this to connect those transmission lines from you know wind, which is going to be, let's say in the United States, let's uh, let's take for example, all the way out in the Great Plains, because you know you've seen Kansas, I think 40-something percent of its energy is wind. Well, to get that to other places, though, you have to have infrastructure for that. Mm -hmm. The same with solar. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think that it's going to be – and I'm very agnostic on this kind of thing as far as you know, nuclear goes as well. I think it will all be part of the broader energy footprint that we're going to see. And I think that you know, many people recognize that it has to be. So, you know, but I, the, the, the transition that we're talking about, which is well under development, is going to take, I think, longer than many of us expect, um, many, longer than the most ambitious of, of those uh, who believe that it should. Um, but its importance also cannot be understated that it, it, it is a, you know, it is crucial, um, but it has a lot of hiccups and it has a lot of time that it takes for development. So that's the sort of basic broader kind of, you know, my take on it is how I would come at it. Good stuff. David Gavin from Reuters, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll do it again. And a sooner, we're not going to wait seven years. We're going to do it a lot sooner. Okay. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. This Have a good fun. day. All right, great. Thanks, you too. Bye. Take care. Wow, it was great uh, hearing from David again and talking about it. We have two guests today, like I mentioned, and before we get to the next guest, I want to mention something I want to talk to you about. I want you to listen to this because Interactive Brokers is, is I just got to tell you about, I really enjoy the relationship I have in terms of working with Interactive Brokers for clients, but did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 5.58% to 6.58%. And their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest in stocks and options, futures funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your cost to maximize your returns. And of course, we got to know that rates are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. And as promised, we have two guests today, and our second guest is Vitaly Katzenelson, and he's a chief investment officer at Investment Management Associates, or we call it IMA, which is a value investment shop based in Denver, Colorado, very much opposite of what I am sitting in, the, the oppressive heat and humidity. He's in thin air, beautiful sunshine, and seeing mountains where I just have total flatness. But after he received his graduate and undergraduate degrees in finance from the University of Colorado, uh, he finished his CFA designation and uh, wanted to keep learning. He does a lot of writing, a lot of writing, a lot of wonderful writing, a podcaster as well. So welcome back, Vitaly, my good friend. How are you? Hey, doing great. Thank you. So, you know, last time I saw you, we were uh, walking many miles down That's the right. beach of North Miami. Absolutely. And I got to tell you something. I think I hurt my knee that day. You saying I'm going to get a bill or something or? No, no. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe. What what happened was that if you remember, we were walking and walking and having, we were with your son and we were uh -huh. having such a wonderful time. And we, we, do you remember, you probably remember this, somewhere along the way, we're like, wait, 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 how far have we walked already? And we uh, turned around and I think we were five or six miles uh, for a full trip, right? Yeah, it was such a good conversation. I think that's why it worked so much. Yeah, it was great. No, it was great. But my knee was like killing me for like a week oh, after. I think I had the wrong shoes on or something. Anyway, let's get into the, the heart of the matter, the discussion that I want to get to with you with regard to a couple of different things. But, you know, you are a value investor and a value investor takes on many different things. Not everybody, everybody's, oh, value, the dude only buys utilities. That's not what value investing is, right? It's it's more of a, well, let me ask you to explain it. What what do you, How do you interpret the idea, the concept of value investing? Well, I think what value investing is usually misunderstood. People think it's a, just buying statistically cheap stocks, something that if you can count to 10 and that's the price to earnings, that's people think, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's value investing. No, value investing is actually like, it's a philosophical approach or it's a framework of how to approach investing. It's a kind of an intelligent way to invest. You're looking for companies that are, you know, you want to buy companies with a margin of safety. Like you want it to be undervalued. Uh, you, you, so you, you're looking for companies that you will, I'm sorry, the risk is for you is not really volatility, mm -hmm. but because you can't really control it, but uh, kind of permanent loss of capital. Right. So you're not you're looking to buy a biotech with an unproven drug. If, listen, like this is, would be outside of my circle of competence, but if I think I can buy this biotech hypothetically uh, and there's margin of safety because maybe it has so much cash, right? Maybe right. I'm buying below cash and I get this unproven drug for free. 
then I would, yeah, then I'd buy it, right? So it's, I just need to have, it has to, it has to be in my circle of competence and I need to have a, a margin of safety when I buy it. But some things, it's changed so much over the years. The idea of what is a quality stock, blue chip. You know, we didn't have the excessive buybacks back in the day, the financial engineering. Very difficult to really discern what is a company that is is quality over. Uh, and, and, and by the way, put that into that framework um, mm -hmm. and, and, and have something that you're willing to hold on to versus the stuff that just is flying for no reason like we've seen over the last three months. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Well, number one, what, what, there are a lot of things have changed over the years, but really what hasn't changed are human emotions, right? We get over-optimistic and then we get over-pessimistic. You know, so human emotions haven't changed in centuries and they won't change for, for centuries as well. Um, you're right that it seems to be the length of competitive advantage has shortened, especially in the digital space. Mm -hmm. um, Interestingly, in some sectors, it hasn't changed at all. So if you're looking at, I don't know, if you're looking at the real companies, like in defense sector, it hasn't really changed that much. Well, it, takes, know, they, it, takes, it, it takes X amount of days and X amount of people and robots and all to make a particular product output versus, you know, digital, you can have teams of it working on it and the, 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 the process can be shortened dramatically, right? Yeah, no, it's absolutely. So it's a... I guess to be a good investor, you always have to be learning and adjusting. Your philosophy does not need to change, but you have to realize that that like if you only invested for hypothetically in industrial companies and that's all, the, the only thing you did, the your investment pie of what you can choose from has been shrinking for decades, right? Mm -hmm. It's not growing again as we keep bringing companies back to the United States, but you know, if you basically just ignored technology companies for the last 20 years, you left a lot of money on the table. So uh, you have to be open-minded, open you have to be learning, and you also have to be kind of expanding your circle of competence, but slowly, you know, kind of thoughtfully, steadily. So let's talk about Apple, because that is probably one of the stocks that went from... <sighs> I would say value, well, it went from growth, right? Originally, uh, yeah. uh, originally, originally, you know, with, with, with um, when we saw the, I guess, well, let me just say this, pre-iPod, you know, pre-iPhone, pre-iPod, Apple was a growth machine, you know, with a few computers, the Mac and all that. Then they had the um, iPod, then the iPhone. That really kicked into high gear in terms of growth orientation. Then something happened for a number of years. It become it became more of a cash cow, more of a, a value play, and then it's kind of shifted back again. So take me through. I mean, that's as I see it. Take me through. I know you, 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 you. I know you own Apple products like I own, right? We got we got the phone. We got the you know we got the. I'm looking at my closet right now because there's 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 a crack in the door in my studio. That's where I shove all my technology stuff. There's like a bunch of boxes. There's an AirPod box. There's an iPad box. Everybody see it right there. So um, walk me through the history back to I don't know. You know the. Um, Late, uh, you know, early, early uh, 2017, 18, yeah. kind of where we are today. Yeah, so like, I'll start a little bit earlier. Like in 1997, 98, Apple was like a volume stock. You could, at that time, you could buy Apple for its cash. 
And Michael Dell made this famous comment that you know Apple should just liquidate. Uh, you know, like when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, you know, Michael Dell said you should just liquidate the company and give, you know, give the cash back to shareholders. <laughs> and Steve Jobs did incredible turnaround. And you know, by introducing uh, by improving Macs, introducing iPads, etc. And for for a while, it became a growth stock. Then Apple introduced iPhone. It was still a growing company. Then in 2012, something changed. Um, Apple was actually trading at seven times earnings. And I remember, Andrew, I wrote a few articles about this because we were buying. And this is a true story because I like it's a like good thing about my articles that timestamps when they're published. Mm-hmm. The story because I published it then is that the I got when we bought Apple, a client called me and said, "This is the you know this is the." most responsible decision you ever made, which is I never get these phone calls and we bought Apple, you know, and um, the Apple at the time was hated so much because everybody looked at Apple and they thought it's another Nokia or oh, another Motorola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What separates Apple, what's, what, what, because, you know, Nokia and Motorola, you know, ended up having a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Because of Apple. What's, what set Apple apart at the time um, that uh, Motorola and Nokia were hardware companies only. Apple is both. It's both hardware company and a software company at the same time. And when you bought Nokia phone, if Motorola came out with a better phone, you can switch and there was no switching costs. Once you start using iPhones, once you start buying other products that Apple makes, your switching costs change dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's what market underappreciated. So we owned Apple for a long time. We made a lot of money and then we sold it. And I would argue we sold it at like probably, I don't know, when the stock probably tripled since at least. Mm-hmm. And when we sold it, part of the sale was a mistake. Part of it wasn't. The mistake part was that we did not see the pricing power Apple had because Apple has raised prices. Number of phones they sold over the last five years has not increased that much. But what has changed, they raised prices tremendously. This is unheard of in the consumer space. But Apple is not a typical consumer stock either, it's a consumer company either. So that was a mistake on our part. Mm-hmm. What I don't think was a mistake is the price earnings increased tremendously since we sold it. Um, and I think we sold it at a reasonable price for you know maybe 15, 17 times earnings. Now it's now it is, and let's come let's have a conversation where it's trading today because it's a it's not that clear. So let me explain what I mean. In 2019, 2020, before the pandemic, uh maybe maybe 2018, 2019, before the pandemic, Apple made about three dollars share of earnings. Mm-hmm. Then during the pandemic, its earnings jumped to six dollars. The number of phones it's per, per share, just for people listening in the background, yeah, yeah, per, yeah, share, yeah, yeah. per share, per share, per share. Yeah, yeah, that, that would share. be bad if it wasn't. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, so today it's like 190, you know, 195 or something. This, like that. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. at this point in time, it's about 190 something dollars, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, the question is this what is Apple's earnings power? Because we, we do know something, we know that, and we can see this with many other companies that they received pandemic boost in sales. Some of, this, some of the boost came because people were flushed with cash. They were bored sitting at home. So they did what they usually do. They buy stuff. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, some of it was 
the uh, some of the, some of them start to work from home, so they need to buy laptops or an iPads, etc. But the thing about Apple products is that they are not those are even even though the name of the company is Apple, the item itself is not perishable. And so this, when you buy a MacBook or yeah. you buy an iPhone, it's you know it doesn't go bad tomorrow, right? So mm-hmm. that a lot of times when you when the, when you have this surge in sales, all you're doing is just borrowing from huge future sales. So I would argue that its earnings power is not six dollars, but somewhere between I don't know. I actually I don't even know how much. Somewhere between three and four, maybe. You okay. think you think that they pulled forward all of that, and they're going to come back to three bucks? And three bucks, what's the PE ratio at three bucks? Sixty times, earn, 60 times earnings, sixty plus times earnings. If it's six dollars, yeah, it's thirty-four times, thirty-three times, thirty-four times earnings, right? No, if it's six dollars, yes. If it's, if it's six dollars, no, if it's six dollars, if it's six dollars. Yeah, yeah. Now wait a minute, yeah. but they have services and they have. Um, you know, a variety of things going on. And of course, the chat the chat AI that's coming on. You know, you got to use AI in there somehow. Um, but are you telling me that their earnings, the probability of their earnings from what you could see at least, is not going to stay at these levels? And- no, I, I, think it's, I think it's unlikely. So I think it's unlikely. I don't know. I'm not saying that three times, you know, three dollars of earnings. Well, do you remember something? You, you mentioned, you're the one that mentioned Dell. You, you, remember, yeah. you, you remember how much Dell stock, how well it did back in the day, right? And then it hasn't, yeah. Well, one of the reasons why was that there was this estimation on the street that the growth rate of Dell would inc- would continue as it has been, which would mean in the end, everybody would have like 12 desktops, computers on their desks at any yeah. time if you do continue this kind of incredible pace. I mean, the pace that we're looking at from Apple is what you're saying is that if they keep on the pace that they've been on, everybody's going to have to own multiple iPhones. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the number of phones they sold, like the, the iPhone market has not really grown that much since 2000, right? Because it's a very mature, it's a very mature market. Um, so like my, my point is this, let's, let's, do, let's be concerned. Let's actually be aggressive, actually. Okay. Let's say mm-hmm. Apple earnings are $6. Let's say they're earnings $6. Okay. No, let's say 30 something in three is a 32 times earnings. Wow. 33, yeah, 32 times earnings. Okay. Well, this is a company that's has market's valuation of three trillion dollars. Yes. So for them, that's a 30 times earnings. It's a lot of money. It's a very expensive for a company that's extremely mature. Okay, now they have services, but services, it's very profitable, but it's still relatively small part of the business, despite its growth and high margin. Now, what's interesting about this, people will say, what about uh, other products? What about car? What about, uh, let's, let's, let's discuss car, Air, actually. The, car, the car is actually very simple. The car is actually, it's very simple to analyze. So in other words, the company, the mature company that's growing maybe three to 5% a year, should essentially be trading 20 times earnings, okay? So in other words, you, you know, basically the car is worth, you know, you know, would be one third of the company, right? In other words, that's extra 10 times. So that's about trillion dollars. Well, Tesla, which is, I would argue, the stock is very expensive. Ridiculously and, expensive. And, and full disclosure, we're short for clients right now for Tesla. Yeah, yeah, it's Tesla, which is a very expensive stock. And this is a car company, kind of, it's a car, the car company of the future, meaning they figured out how to make electric cars very well, right? Uh, and it's it has a market valuation of $800 billion. So in other words, if you buy an Apple today, 
you're basically assuming that they're going to have a successful car and it's going to be as successful as, as Tesla. I cannot imagine, by the way, I'm going to stop you right here, that Apple's going to come out with a true car. It seems illogical to me. Too much work, too many problems. The startup, the cost factors, the servicing, the leasing. Oh, my God. I, I, you know, like that's, who knows? I don't know. I mean, if they come, they come out with a hybrid model, it's, you know, in the sense. They should just package up the electronics for the car. Like, they may do that. Like, I but know. My point is, let me just, Andrew, the point I'm trying to make here is more important is that even if you bought it today and they came out with a car and it's as successful as Tesla, which it took Tesla a long time to get to this level, it's already priced in. And that, by the way, at the earnings of $6, which are most likely to be not the real earnings power of Apple. And if it's a, if it's a, if the earnings power is, let's say, $4, let's say, you know, then you're paying, what, almost 45 times earnings for, again, for a very mature company. So are you putting your money where your mouth is? You shorten this bad boy? You know, I say the, we, don't, we, don't short, we don't short stocks, mm. but I, I'll tell you this, if I... I would I could see myself buying put options on Apple here. Yeah, we don't, we, we don't Long, longer term put options. Yeah, so for earnings for, are next week. By the way, earnings are coming out next week with Amazon. Apple and Amazon are coming out next week, so we'll hear yeah. it. I mean, one of the things that we do know that investors have been very forgiving. Uh, uh, well, it, and listen, I think this is a kind of a bubble now 3.0. <laughs> Usually, it takes a while for the bubble for for one bubble to another. Mm-hmm. Usually it takes I don't know, 10, 15 years. Well, I think it took us like eight months or something. So yeah, well, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but that's that's you know. So th- those are my views on Apple. But I think that also, if you want to talk about the market, you can kind of go through the same math for the stock market in general. I mean, it's not not you kind of basically all the good news and a lot more has already been priced in, and. You know, you look at the stock. The stock. Well, let me, let me stop you. That. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for a second. And the bad news has not. The, the bad news has not. Right. No, that, you're absolutely right. Yes. Okay. Continue. Sorry. Continue yeah, on. No, no, no. no that's, that, that's a good point. I, the bad news is not. So the stock market overall doesn't look that expensive. I mean, it's trading 20-something times earnings. Here's a problem. Today's margins are basically at the highest level they've ever been mm-hmm. for, this, for the economy. Um it's very unlikely that they will stay at this level. And if they decline and they come back to their historical average or even above historical average, the earnings would likely decline maybe 30% or more. So in other words, you're not really paying 20 times earnings for stocks, but more like 30 times earnings for stocks. Mm. Mm. And why would the margins decline? Well, we have you know, 20, you know, our interest rates are uh, two decade high. Our, um, most our government spending at, at the we run huge budget deficit despite an okay economy. We are in, in addition to that, we have the highest amount of debt we ever had since World War II. We are also going to be uh, uh, you know in onshoring uh, bringing more companies. Uh, we're going to be bringing more uh, more production to the United States, which is good for the GDP GDP. But, but it's, that's bad for margins. And the rest of the world is slowing down around us. Let's be honest that there's something that is right now still going on in the United States that is very odd, uh, unexpected, and uh, you know almost baffling in terms of how we have increased interest rates just last week another quarter basis point. 
quarter, well, quarter, quarter point, 25 basis points. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and yet we are seeing GDP at 2.4%. We're seeing that the employment number is still at 3.6%. We're seeing that the uh, initial claims last Thursday were 221. We're seeing that the um, consumer confidence has been really high. We saw a great number. Housing starts are up. We see that uh, home sales have stabilized. Uh, we've seen that home prices have stabilized. When you look at the uh, case Schiller down a little bit, but really not that big of a deal. And at the same time, inflation is, is is coming in, which we know that one of the reasons that inflation is coming in is because we have new methodology on how to calculate it. Okay, all that's great. Again, when we look at the stock market these days, you know, and you talk about this issue when you wrote in there, you wrote a note, a uh, letter, uh, uh, an article, if you want to call it, called The Stock Market, The Economy, Possible Outcomes, How to Invest, right? Yeah. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a mouthful right there. Um, you know, you talking about if we're lucky from here moving forward, you had written, if we're lucky, we're going to have a sideways market. Yeah. If we're unlucky, the economy goes into long-term stagnation. We'll have a secular bear market. The most recent secular bear market was in Japan, um, and, and PEs and earnings declined. But again, you, you, you have to admit that the current environment where we've seen interest rates pop so dramatically and nobody's really, it's like a flea on somebody's shoulder, just knock it off. Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. What's your best guess on on where we're going, if, if this is it, maybe this sideways market? And what do you do in those kind of situations? I think the in 20, yeah, I published the book, the little book of sideways markets. And I would argue this book is more relevant today than when I published it in 2010. Mm. Because... The red we 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 have we're basically looking at high valuations, very uncertain what the economy is going to do for the next decade, and I think if we are lucky, as as you said, we are going to be in the sideways markets. If the economy cracks and we have a prolonged recession, and I don't know when the, the, that when it will happen, we may have we we could have a bear market, and um, so the. The way so the the way to invest in this environment is, and this is what kind of I describe in in, the, in my book, is basically you want to look for high quality companies that will survive no matter what you know, what economy is thrown their way. You want to and you want to buy them when they are very very cheap. So if you can't find enough stocks to buy, you need to be willing to hold cash. And these days, cash is actually yielding some. Income, yeah, which is a nice thing. Exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Today you get four and a half. Back 5%. like the old days. Oh, I can get five percent of my cash. So, That's how right. do you go about that process? I mean, a lot of people get. You know what happens is they do. This is the. I think you know you you start out the discussion with behavioral finance and the psychology of the markets and the psychology of the human being. And one of the problems they go into is in and out of this fear and greed, and in in, in and out of these. You know, from trough to 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 expansion to you know somewhere in the middle. What happens from a psychological standpoint, you, 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 again, I'm, I'm throwing this out. You tell me what you think about it. What happens is when things are good, people are like, oh, man, it's never going to get any worse. And when it gets bad, everybody says it's never going to get any better. When the stock is all the way up, everybody's like, oh, I want to buy it. When it's down, it's like, oh, crap, it's going to hell. So how do you get yourself in a position where you could find those cheap names? And if you don't have the balls to say, I'm buying when there's blood in the street because that takes some, you know, that takes some cojones, right? Um, you know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, what, what, what's the process an individual should look at? So first of all, let me agree with you this way. Um, usually when things are going well, 
our time horizon horizon you know uh, increases. Right. When things don't go well, it shrinks. So number one, you want to fine tune your time horizon. Make sure it's not too long, not too short. It's you know it's a you kind of so your time horizon should not change uh, based on what the stock prices are doing. So that's number one. Number two, um, and this may not necessarily be that helpful to your to your, to your listeners unless they do an individual you know kind of analyze individual stocks. But we do this just buying one stock at a time. Mm-hmm. So meaning when we analyze companies, we are looking for high quality companies. We want to make sure they have good balance sheets, they have significant competitive advantages, they're run by people who are good at allocating capital and running businesses. And we want to buy them a discount to their fair value. Um, because what happens is that the future may end up being, you know, not as shiny or not as bright as we think today. And if that happens, you know, hopefully in the worst case, I'll just break even mm-hmm. you know, because, I, because I had margin of safety. And, and then you just try to put it into process and keep doing it over and over again. And that's what we do. Now, are you buying full positions at once? Are you saying, you know, as things are coming in, because that's when you're buying stuff, right? When stuff's coming in. So let's say the stock, ABC, you like it. You said, you know, I really like this a bit lower. And some reason, for whatever reason, it drops 12%, 15%. Maybe it's specific to the name or maybe it's something to do with the markets themselves or maybe industry-wide, whatever it is. It drops down. And you're like, you know, I do know that, I don't know, 80 to 90% of the stock uh, stock's particular performance can be tied to the broader market trend, right? We know that. That's a big issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, all tides lift ships and, you know, all drains sink boats, right? Yeah. So so do you buy a full position? Do you say, okay, you know what, we're going to step into this, see how it goes? How does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've been playing with it a lot and experimenting with this. Lately, our position sizes were just smaller in general, unless we buy a company whose business exhibiting very strong fundamentals, which are completely um, uh, untied to the health of the economy. So if you buy a defense company, for instance, like, you know, we may be buying larger positions because it's not impacted by the, you know, it has zero links to the economy. Uh, but we have been buying smaller positions and uh, just because it's a, the money, you know, the market is, you know, is making new highs. But it also, you know, in all honesty, we've been kind of, in this case, we've been running out of cash a little bit. So, uh, uh, despite the markets making new highs, we were actually, you know, in existing accounts, we were able to, uh, you know, be still full invested. So, so uh, did, 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 I have a, did I have a conversation with you years ago mm-hmm. where you were talking about, you know how you take, not you, but generally speaking, you could take drugs, drugs, but like LSD, but you take small doses Microdosing. Wasn't yes. that you? Was oh, that you? Yeah, that was me, yeah. That was you. <laughs> God, yeah, what yeah, year no, was you. that we were talking about microdosing? Actually, was... actually, actually, it's kind of funny. There was a very good time step on it. You and I talked in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so and that's exactly what we were doing. We were just buying smaller positions. Uh-huh. And, uh, because the future, the future looked so uncertain, right? So we, you know, because now we know how it played out. At the time, it didn't. So we were buying smaller positions and uh, that actually served us well because we were able to put a lot of money to work. It just, it just didn't happen on, you know, in one day. Okay, so let's look at this. So now you microdose, you take a little position, you take a small piece of whatever you're taking. How do you know when the next point is to upscale that? Well, I think it's a, 
it's it, it can be it's a very difficult to say because it's it's a stack on stack basis, right? It depends like uh, if the company's fundamentals are very very strong and it's a you know and uh, you know and the and the stock significantly undervalued, then we may actually we may actually buy the full position right away. Mm-hmm. If it's a if it's a tie to the economy, if you think there was some some link to the economy, we may take a smaller position. Um, and I see also there was another factor here. It's really based also on a discount to fair value. So like, let me give an example. So they say a company is worth $100. We think it's fair value is $100. And it trades at $80. Well, we'll probably not buy anything. Mm-hmm. If it trades at $60, hypothetically, we may buy a, a 3% position. Right. At $50, we would buy four. At $30, we would buy five. Mm-hmm. So it's all based on the, because at different prices, it becomes less risky investment. Right. Not, if nothing else has changed, nothing else has changed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So our position size, in part, the reason for our position size were smaller because we have a lot of those kind of sixty-dollar stocks right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, th- th- that's why, if, if they were thirty dollars, then we would be buying five percent position. Right sure, sure, yeah. sure. So I mean, I think what we're gathering and what I'm getting from all this this discussion is that number one, there's a valuation target that you could put on any. Uh, stock that you're a little bit negative on certain names that have run up so dramatically that really maybe don't have the earnings power and people are going to be unfortunately potentially surprised with you know what happens longer term especially if the economy stays on the same trajectory which is good and bad at the same time right it's kind of there's, there's a mixed discussion here yeah, um, yeah no I think they yeah I think they let me clarify just one thing uh, I can they, when you do when you do analysis sometimes I I analyze a company and I say, I have no idea what it's worth, right? Or the range of valuation is very, very wide. And then I, so if that's the case, I move on, right? Because I only need 25 stocks and there's 10,000 stocks between US and global stock markets. Mm-hmm. I just need 25, 30 stocks. So I, most of, most of my day is, uh, you know, just, you know, just keep saying no to new ideas or, I, or maybe I'm interested, but not at this price. So, are you always fully invested, or mostly invested? No, not at all. No, just to, to, this year has just happened to be that uh, the that we you know we actually more invested this year than you would think when the market is making your highs. Mm-hmm. It's just our portfolio is undervalued. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very good. Good information. Now, uh, first of all, I just want to mention to anybody that wants to find out more about the little book of sideways markets, for example, you can go over to the disciplineinvestor.com on the show notes for episode number 827. You'll find that and more as well as the latest book that he has, which is not so much investing, right, Vitaly? No, not as, there's a, in the, yeah, my latest book, Soul in a Game, there's not a single chapter about investing, actually. Right. It's about life. Yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. So check out all that is to be found uh, on IMA, Investment Management Associates, as well as uh, Vitaly Katzenelson. And uh, we got to cut it. It's about a thank you. Good information. Uh, love the topic. Love the uh, sparring discussion uh, as well. And hopefully uh, get to do a, a walk with you next time along the beaches. In Absolutely. South, and Enjoy. We'll do it again. Second mention, we have, a, we have a podcast that's not as good as yours. <laughs> but but it's, a, and it's a lazy man's podcast because just somebody else just reading you my articles. But it's called Intellectual Investor. The Intellectual Investor. Yeah, and you can find it. Sounds kind of familiar, similar to yours a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's a uh, an investor that FM. And no, we don't have eight hundred. How many episodes you made? Eight hundred twenty-seven. Eight twenty-seven on this this one, yeah. 
Oh my God, that's incredible. So yeah. Still you know, going. Congratulations. Still that's going. Like, <laughs> Lindy, there's a kind of Lindy thing going for you. Yeah. All right, Vitaly, thanks for joining me. I'll see you soon, buddy boy. Thank you. Right, Thank you. Bye-bye. That's going to wrap it up. Two great guests this week, David Gaffin from Reuters, Vitaly Katzenelson, IMA, Investment Management Associates. I want to thank you guys for joining me. Hopefully you got a lot out of this as well. We'll see what happens with Apple next week. As uh, Sometime when you listen to this, you may be right heading into that Apple earnings that's coming out. So that should be really interesting on top of all the earnings that we saw this week, last week, the week before from the uh, you know, financials as well as the, the tech companies, the megatechs, and the industrials that we're going to be seeing coming through. So lots of earnings coming out, lots of interesting things happening with the world. Thank you for being here. Thank you for always being here. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz and Company.